Hello, Vass here with this week's How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. A couple of weeks back, I spoke to the public philosopher Roman Krisnarek about the good ancestor. His new book, exploring how we ensure our actions today, are made in the best interests of future generations. Here's the interview. Roman, thanks for joining me on the podcast. You finished your new book, The Good Ancestor, just as the pandemic was kicking off, and it could not have been more timely. You're inspired to write by Milton Friedman's famous dictum that real change only takes place after a crisis. So you need to seed your ideas in the culture so they're ready to be picked up when the crisis hits. But the ideas in this book could not be much less like Milton Friedman's. They were actually inspired by Jonas Salk, who created the first polio vaccine. Tell us about him. So Jonas Salk was a really extraordinary and important figure who in 1955, with a team of researchers, developed that first polio vaccine. He refused to patent his uh, discovery, which was uh, one good thing for humanity that he did. But back in the 1970s, as he got older, he started getting really interested in long-term thinking in the future of humankind. And he said that the great question facing our species is this, are we being good ancestors? He was really concerned about our destruction of the living world, about the excesses of consumer culture, and believed that actually if we were going to survive for the long term, we needed to fundamentally extend our time horizon. So instead of thinking on the scale of seconds, minutes, and hours, we needed to think on the scale of decades, centuries, and millennia. And ultimately, I think his great insight really was to get us to extend our minds forward in time. Imagine how are we going to be judged by those future generations? I mean, there are 7.7 billion people alive today, and that's just a tiny fraction of the estimated 100 billion people who have lived and died over the past 50,000 years. But over the next 50,000 years, an estimated 7 trillion people will be born, assuming current birth rates stabilize. I mean, even in the next century or two, tens of billions of people will be born. So Salk was getting us to think about how are all those future generations who we tend not to think about going to judge us for what we did or didn't do when we had the chance. We're particularly bad at long-term thinking at this moment, aren't we? History is full of very long-term projects like, say, the pyramids or the Great Wall of China. But in 2020, long-term thinking is quite thin on the ground. Why is that? It's a really good question because certainly if we look around everyday life, we're clicking the buy now button, we're checking our messages, we've got our politicians who can't see past the next election or even the latest tweet or businesses can't see past the next quarter report. It looks like we're really bad at this thing, long-term thinking. We're certainly not on the path to being good ancestors. And of course, nations sit around international conference tables bickering away while the planet burns and species disappear. Where does this come from? Well, on one level, the answers seem obvious that we are embroiled in short-termism due to digital culture, due to speculative capitalism, due to those the political presentism built into electoral cycles. But actually, there's a, a longer history to short-termism. So I tend to think about it going back at least five or 600 years to the beginning or the invention of the first mechanical clocks in Europe in the 14th century. Then time was measured or the, the bells tended to go every hour or maybe every quarter of hour. But by 1700, most clocks had minute hands. 
By 1800, they tended to have second hands. So time was speeding up and the factory clock became the great instrument of control in the Industrial Revolution, keeping that assembly line building. Time is money. And of course, now we're in the age of the, the nanosecond and the high speed, a high frequency trade. So, but there's a long history to the way that time's being sped up, that the future's being brought closer and closer and closer. So I think one of the great challenges of our time is exactly to try and think long, to think particularly beyond our own lifetimes, beyond the ego boundary towards actions where we can influence things, but we don't suffer the consequences ourselves. And this is much easier said than done, I think. I mean, there's a real conceptual hole around the concept of long-term thinking. I've heard lots of people evoke the concept, particularly with um, reference to the ecological crisis, but few actually define long-term thinking or have uh, very nuanced plans about what that would actually mean. It's, it's a conceptual vacuum. How do we stop it being just an empty buzzword that everyone celebrates, but no one actually puts into practice? Yeah, in fact, the reason I wrote this book, The Good Ancestor, was out of a sense of frustration, exactly related to what you're talking about. You see, all these people talking about, oh, we've got too much short-termism, we need long-term thinking, whether it's Al Gore talking about short-termism in business or even really eminent thinkers like Jared Diamond saying we need long-term thinking to avert civilizational collapse. But what the hell is long-term thinking? How long is it? Is it always good for you? I mean, Hitler wanted to found an 1,000-year Reich. The regime in North Korea wants to maintain its power and privilege for generation upon generation and pass it down through the kids. The former head of investment bank Goldman Sachs, Gus Levy, once said, we're greedy, but long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. Well, all these form are forms of long-term thinking, but are they necessarily good for us and for the welfare of future generations? So I think the real starting point for becoming a long-term thinker is to stop for a moment and think about, well, what is long-term thinking? How long is it? What are the different types of it? Is it a rational or emotional thing? What can we learn from other cultures? And that's what I've tried to do, really, to try and provide a conceptual toolkit for how to master this elusive art and get beyond the, the short-termism which is dominating our brains. Let's talk about some of those conceptual tools. And you mentioned um, that other cultures have been much better at this than, than we are, and we ought to learn something from them. Tell us about seventh-generation thinking. Right. So the idea of seventh-generation thinking is a current practice in many Native American communities, in the Iroquois community, Lakota, and other communities, where they make community decisions based on thinking about the impact seven generations from today. Now, other cultures, particularly indigenous cultures, have similar kind of ideas. They don't necessarily talk about seventh generation thinking. So um, I've spoken to Maori uh, activists from Aotearoa, New Zealand, or indigenous people in Central America and so on, who have similar ideas of looking forward generations and looking at the impacts of, on actions. But it's certainly very different from the short-term hyper-individualism of modern consumer capitalist culture. But one of the interesting things about something like the seventh generation idea is thinking about, well, how is it possible to translate into non-indigenous cultures? You know, can we really take this kind of idea and bolt it on or bring it into our politics or our economies. And 
there's some really fascinating examples where this is indeed happening. So in Japan, there's an amazing political movement called Future Design. And what they do is they bring together local residents from towns and cities to discuss and draw up plans for the places where they live. And they split them into two groups. And the first group are told that they're residents from the present day. And the second group, the second half of them, are told to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. And it turns out that the residents from 2060, and they're given these ceremonial robes to wear, those residents putting themselves in the position of the future come up with much more radical plans for transforming their cities, whether it's healthcare investments or climate change action. And this future design movement, which is spreading throughout Japan, it's in big cities like Kyoto, for example, is based directly and directly inspired by the Native American seventh generation idea. Right? And so here's a movement spreading across Japan, which is drawing on Native American culture. That's extraordinary. And I think this particular movement, future design, is one that has potential to spread worldwide. Just imagine if towns and cities across the world were practicing something like that, which is really a form of citizens' assembly, which of course has become a much more popular and vibrant form of political decision-making in the last decade because of the success of citizens' assemblies in Ireland, for example, around the abortion debate, where they got random people to you know, be part of, in effect, a kind of council to have proper deliberative discussions. And it, all the evidence shows that citizens' assemblies are much better at taking the long view than are our everyday politicians who we elect you know, every few years. One organization that's trying to encourage us to imagine deep time is the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco, where you're a research fellow. Tell us about the Long Now Foundation mission and how you came to get involved with them. Yeah, so the Long Now Foundation was founded in the 1990s by people like the designer Stuart Brand, the musician Brian Eno was involved in it from early times. And their ideal really is to try and encourage a culture of long-termism. So we take responsibility for people and planet going centuries in the future, even thousands of years into the future. And they have these projects which try and create this culture of long-termism. Probably the best known one is a clock they're building called the 10,000-year clock. And it's being built as we speak inside a mountain in the Texas desert. And you're going to be able to visit this clock by hiking through the desert to get there for a couple of days. Then you'll walk up steps cut into the mountainside, each of them representing a million years of geological time. Inside, you will hear a series of 10 bells playing. Every day, a different sequence will be played. And it's based on an algorithm designed by Brian Eno. So the bells are never going to repeat in the 10,000 years that this goes on. In fact, he's even released an album which plays the bells that are supposed to be played in 5,000 years from now. Uh, it's an amazing album. Wow. It's called January 7003, I think it's called. <laughs> anyway, and, and so I love this idea of the clock because it's a kind of cultural messaging service telling us to start thinking long term. It's not a practical political movement or project, but I deeply believe in these cultural projects for changing the conversation. I mean, another one which I really like comes from the Scottish artist Katie Patterson and hers is a project called Future Library. And this is a library which will not be opened until the year 2114. Every year for a hundred years, a famous author is donating a book 
which will remain completely unread and hidden in the future library until 2114, when the collection of 100 books will be printed on paper made from a thousand trees which have been planted in a forest outside Oslo. That forest is growing now. Um, the first person to give a book was Margaret Atwood, Elif Shafak, and others have given books. And just think, Margaret Atwood has donated a book which will not be read. She'll never see it read in her lifetime. She'll never meet any of the readers. That's a kind of legacy gift to the future. And it's one of these themes I explore in the book. What kind of legacy should we be leaving? And I love that idea of, I'm not sure even I could have the courage to write a book that would be <laughs> kept secret for a, a hundred years. It's a lot of work. <laughs> Atwood, of course, is one of the world's leading authors of speculative and science fiction. And science fiction in itself is another way of helping us to envisage and come to terms with the very long term. You know, you're a fan of H.G. Wells and of Olaf Stapleton who made the concept of deep time real for previous generations in their, in their novels. And science fiction, to some extent, acts as an early warning system by extrapolating present-day trends to reveal the consequences if those trends continue indefinitely. So perhaps it's no surprise that the very bleak dystopian fiction that is so popular among teenagers today has become one of our dominant art forms. Yeah, I'm hugely inspired by science fiction writers like Kim Stanley Robinson, Octavia Butler, who are extending our imaginations forward, building on the work of those earlier authors you mentioned, H.G. Wells, Olaf Stapleton. One of the books that's really inspired me for writing my own book was Kim Stanley Robinson's space novel, Aurora, which looks like a kind of a, a space generation story where a bunch of humans are sent out to colonize another planet but it's going to take them 200 years to get there. So several generations have to live on a spaceship. And so people live and die. And this spaceship has different biospheres. It's a bit like a flying Eden project. So there's a savannah and a tropical uh, biome and so on. And their aim is they have to live within the biophysical limits of this spaceship. In the same way, we have to live in, within the biophysical limits of the planet Earth. And I don't want to give away too many spoilers. In fact, I'm going to give away the ultimate spoiler. Basically, they arrive there at this planet, which is supposed to be like Earth. And it turns out they can't survive there because humans have only really evolved to survive on Earth. So they, they turn back. They come back again and travel another couple of centuries back. But the reason I mentioned this book, and I think it's so brilliant, it is, for me, the greatest textbook on ecological economics I've ever read, because it is all about how they manage to use the resources within their spaceship and not use more than they have and not create more waste than can be absorbed, which is what the basis of ecological economics is all about. It's about living on one planet. I've been a very late comer to the ideas of ecological economics. I studied normal economics 30 years ago, but it was all, you know, mostly kind of the free market kind of economics where you open a textbook and there's a supply and demand line or a circular flow of income diagram, but it's embedded on a white background with no biosphere around it, no sense of a real planet there. But I've been learning from science fiction that that is how we need to reorient our economies to live within the boundaries, the planetary boundaries, which the earth offers us. Sadly, the um, citizens of earth in the novel Aurora do not do that. And when the spaceship returns to Earth, they find that it is not uh, an ecological paradise, but ruined. <laughs> Absolutely, completely ruined. Um, 
And so, I mean, of course, that is the challenge to us. And I mean, I hope Kim Stanley Robinson can inspire us to, you know, create new global movements for planetary change. I mean, the problem, of course, with science fiction, particularly science fiction movies, is the sort of voyeurism of, of it and, and the kind of exaggerated dystopia, the kind of um, geostorm films like that, which really don't touch us or change us or move us that much. They just entertain us for a couple of hours. And But I think people like Kim Stanley Robinson, Octavia Butler, Margaret Atwood and others take us much deeper. I think the novel is a better form of using science fiction than film in terms of really getting us to think beyond the here and now. Is it possible to plan for the long term in a liberal democracy? The reason I ask you that is there are more than a few people in the environmental and futurist movements, James Lovelock, for example, or Martin Rees, who suspect that an authoritarian government would do a better job at saving humankind than a democratic one. And Xi Jinping has declared that China is going to be an ecological civilization uh, in the next three decades. So can dictators drive sustainability better than democratically elected leaders? That's a great question, actually, because you wouldn't believe the number of people I've come across in the last few years from the right and the left, greens and non-greens, who secretly dream about a benign dictator, an enlightened despot who's going to save us from our problems, whether it's the threat of the climate crisis and biodiversity loss to AI and biosecurity. People just say, look, let's just get rid of these squabbling politicians. Let's become more like China, more like Singapore, put civil liberties on hold for a while, as James Lovelock has said, and let's um, bring in some kind of strong-arm leader who's a benign dictator, sort it all out for us. Well, it's a kind of enticing idea, isn't it? Wouldn't that be nice? But let's look at the historical evidence, and that's what I've also spent the last couple of years doing. And in order to look at the historical evidence for this, you know, do benign dictators really deliver on things like climate change better than democracies? Well, you've got to go quite deep into political science. And before I started writing popular philosophy books, I was actually a political scientist for my sins. And one of the things I studied was the measurement of democracy, um, an obscure subject, I admit. So what I did in this book is imagine two different axes. On one axis, you've got a measure of how democratic countries are. And uh, in, this, in the book, I work with a great statistician called Jamie McQuilkin doing some work on this. So on the y-axis, imagine how democratic countries are, rating them between zero and one. And uh, on the x-axis was a an index created by Jamie McQuilkin called the Intergenerational Solidarity Index, which rates the 122 countries on their long-term policy performance. So how good are they, are they at converting to renewable energy or um, social measures such as investment in long-term primary school education or economic measures such as wealth inequality? Ten different measures making up a single number which denotes how long-term your government policy is. And of course, I realize that no measures are perfect by any means, but it's a kind of a a rough sketch. And so what you find when you plot how much intergenerational solidarity countries exhibit in their public policy and how democratic they are, it turns out democracies perform much better than autocracies in terms of long-term public policy. So of the 25 highest scoring countries on the intergenerational solidarity index, 21 of them are democracies, only four are autocracies, you know, dictatorships or monarchies. And of the 25 worst scoring countries, 21 of them are autocracies. And for me, that basically buries that benign dictatorship argument. 
there is no systematic empirical evidence that autocracies tend to outperform democracies when it comes to dealing with things like climate change. In fact, the opposite is the case. Of course, there are outliers like China and so on, but don't think that the dream of a benign dictator is one that's going to solve all your problems for you. In fact, it's a really dangerous path to go down. But democracy does have to change and renew, doesn't it? So yeah. you've mentioned already the idea of citizens' assemblies, sortition, to give the technical term. Can you share some other political ideas for creating a long-term view in a democratic society? Right. And so exactly, just as I say that although democracies outperform autocracies for long-term thinking, it doesn't mean that democracies can rest comfortably. Every democracy in the world could be expanding the time horizons in its public policy and the way its politicians work. It's really difficult, though, of course, which politicians want to give up power now want to really think beyond their ministerial terms, not very many of them. So that's why I'm actually really inspired, though, by a wave of action going on around the world. A, a group of what I think of as time rebels are changing the political landscape, slowly, I admit, by bringing long-term thinking into politics. So I already mentioned one example, which was the future design movement in Japan, which, as you say, is based on sortition, a kind of citizens' assembly model. Another really interesting approach happening in many countries is drawing on legal mechanisms, going into courts of law to secure the rights of future people. Now, this is a radical idea. I think it's one of the most important ideas in the development of rights since the French Revolution, the idea of giving rights to people who won't be born for decades, maybe centuries from now. But in fact, there are extraordinary legal cases around the world which are putting this into practice. So in the US, there's an organization called Our Children's Trust, which has filed a landmark case against the US government on behalf of 21 young people campaigning for the legal right to a safe climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. It's a kind of case against the fossil fuel industry. And their case, which has already been going on for five years and it'll go on for many more, has inspired at least 20 cases around the world from Colombia and Pakistan to Uganda and the Netherlands. So there's this wave of legal action, which is a way of, in a way, safeguarding the rights of future people. I'm not saying that this is going to be a quick win. I mean, alongside it, you've also got a growing legal movement to grant legal personhood to nature, living things in nature. So in New Zealand, um, there's a river called the Wanganui River, which is sacred to local Maori people, which has legal personhood, which is protected like a human being from being exploited or from mining. Or in India, there's the Ganges and Yamuna rivers have legal personhood. And these are really important ways of recalibrating politics for a longer sense of now. Another way I think is important has been the rise of devolution. By devolving power to cities, you're probably going to get better long-term political outcomes. I mean, just think of when uh, Donald Trump withdrew the US from the Paris Climate Accords, 279 US city mayors said, well, we're not going to follow what, our, what the federal government's doing. We're going to still try and stick to the 1.5 degrees maximum warming of the Paris Accords. Those 279 mayors represented tens of millions of people, one in five Americans. And it was evidence, I think, of the way that cities can actually become more progressive. I mean, just look during COVID-19. Where do you find 
there's a really progressive public policy going on. Well, go to Paris, where they you know shut down the roads and turn them into parks and bicycle lanes. Go to Amsterdam, which has adopted Kate Raworth's model of donor economics for its post-COVID recovery. Copenhagen as well has adopted donor economics. So you see the real action in cities. And I think historically, this is really, really interesting. I kind of have a soft spot for the Renaissance city-states, even though they were always at war with each other and often controlled by aristocrats. Think also of the Hanseatic League in the 16th and 17th century in Northern Europe, which was an interdependent sort of organization of 200 cities, which had been put together really for trade reasons. But now today you've got organizations like the C40, which is actually a group of about 90 cities cooperating to try and stay within planetary boundaries, keep below 1.5 degrees. So I think a lot of the future of democracy actually is in the future of cities. I'd like to come back to this concept of protecting the rights of the unborn, because it's very counterintuitive and a little difficult to get your head around. Now, in the book, you compare our attitude to unborn generations to uh, the colonization of your home country, Australia. Can you speak a little about that? Yeah, I mean, the way I think about our attitude to the future is that we have colonized it. We treat it like a distant colonial outpost where we can freely dump ecological damage and technological risk as if there was nobody there. And it's a bit like the way when Britain colonized Australia, where I'm from in the 18th and 19th century, they drew on a legal doctrine now known as terra nullius or nobody's land. And that was used to justify the conquest to treat the continent as if there were no indigenous people there. Of course, there were. And I think now alongside terra nullius, we've got something new, which is tempus nullius. We treat the future as nobody's time, similarly an uninhabited territory that's ours for the taking. And the tragedy of it is that future generations aren't here to do anything about this colonization of their futures, really. They can't throw themselves in front of the king's horse like a suffragette or stage a sit-in like a civil rights activist or go on a salt march to defy their colonial oppressors like Mahatma Gandhi. You know, you don't see them being given any political rights or representation. They don't have any influence in the marketplace. They're basically written out of our political systems. And so that's why I think the struggle for giving them rights is a starting point for extending our vision centuries ahead from today. One thing I learned from reading the book is that people who plan public policy and public works actively discount the value of future life compared to present life. Can you explain this concept to us? Yeah, the idea of discounting is really fundamental, and I have to admit, slightly technical. It's basically a form of intergenerational injustice dressed up to look like a rational economic methodology. And the way it works really is a bit like, you know, if you look at somebody, the further they are in the distance, um, the smaller and smaller they get. Well, with discounting, it's the same. The further and further future generations are from us in time, the less weight or value is given to their interests when decisions are being made. And these decisions are being made by governments, particularly when they're making a long-term investment decision, whether investment in a hospital or a renewable energy scheme or something like that. They do what economists call cost-benefit analysis. But the benefits given to future people are discounted or diminished more and more the further away these people are in the future. And what it means in practice is that any project which has benefits 
that are coming 50 years or further into the future basically is given no weight when they're making calculations. So there's a bias towards projects which benefit people in today's world. And so that's why the UK government partly didn't approve a energy project in um, Swansea, a Swans- it's called the Swansea Tidal Lagoon Project, which was a potentially big tidal and renewable energy project, but the discounting rules didn't allow it. And so I actually was speaking to members of parliament a few weeks ago, and I was telling them that, look, if you're going to get long-term thinking into politics, the first thing you need to do is go to the treasury and change the way discounting works, change literally the numbers, the percentages, the calculations, so that future generations are given much more similar weight to people today, or in fact, even to not discount the future at all, because the economists argue that, well, we can discount future generations and their benefits because they'll be richer in the future or have more technology to deal with their problems. But no matter how much money you've got in your pocket or how many gadgets you've got, you can't reverse the melting of the Greenland ice sheet. You can't bring back species which have disappeared. So there's really no justification for discounting when it comes to ecological risk. But I think this idea of discounting is definitely something that we need to be talking about far more. Jonas Salk was one of the first people to point out that growth can't continue forever along a linear path. It doesn't in the natural world and it can't in human systems. Instead, it follows uh, an S-shaped curve. Can you explain the S-shaped curve? Oh, the S-curve is beautiful. The zygmoid curve. So imagine a curve that's rising up like uh, the, the bottom of a letter S and then it hits an inflection point, a turning point, and then it levels out across the top. Now, this is the opposite of the way Western culture works. If you pick up Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, it's basically based on the idea that economic growth can keep going up, we can keep getting richer, more materially well off, and so on, that the curve never has to level out. We'll have all the gadgets we need to deal with carbon emissions and so on. Now, Someone like Pinker, to me, is like a kid who thinks they can keep blowing up a balloon bigger and bigger without the prospect that it would ever pop. But every kid knows, including my two 11-year-old twins, that the balloon does pop. They've known it since they're about two, right? Stephen Pinker doesn't know yet, as far as I can tell. But this is the economist's mindset that we can have perpetual growth. But people like Sulk were early on to the idea of the S-curve, that recognizing that nothing in nature grows forever whether it's a forest of oak trees or your children's feet. Everything has their life cycles. And that goes for human systems too. There is a brilliant study of ancient civilizations done by a Cambridge researcher called Luke Kemp. He looked at about 90 ancient civilizations, worked out that their average lifespan was 336 years. And so he's looking at the Roman Empire and the Assyrians and so on. And basically his point was, no matter how sophisticated your culture or how powerful your civilization. Civilizations are born, they flower, and they die. They basically follow an S-shaped curve. They, they grow, and then they mature, and then they may drop off into decline. And we find it really hard to accept that idea for our own civilization, that the way we're living now in a kind of globalized consumer culture can't go on forever. We, are, we have already gone over the limits. We've gone over safe limits on carbon emissions, safe limits on biodiversity loss, safe limits on ocean acidification. There's just a ton of research on this stuff. We're pushing the earth into, of course, what's known as the Anthropocene, an era 
that's moved on from the Holocene, this new era of the Anthropocene is one that's made by human beings, by our impacts on the world. And that just can't go on. So that's why in this book, I've had to come to this very challenging and fundamental conclusion that we need to absolutely change the key institutions of society. We must wean ourselves off a growth-addicted consumer culture. We must shift from our dying representative democracies, which are hopeless at taking long-term vision. We need to recalibrate these very core institutions towards a longer now, but that is a very big ask. The S-curve doesn't necessarily mean that we are destined for societal collapse and total apocalyptic breakdown, though, does it? There, there are more positive versions of the S-curve that if we act now, we could ensure that we're on. Right. We could jump onto another curve. Absolutely. And that is what the hope is. And it's really interesting this because I think you can look around the world and see little points of hope. I think we can all do that. So I look at that future design movement in Japan and see hope for rethinking democracy or the rise of cities. I think a lot of people are looking to, in the economic field, to things like the circular economy, looking at amazing businesses which are creating their products by and creating no waste, or buildings which are built that are creating more energy than they're using because they're covered with solar panels. Things like this are these little points of hope. And on the one hand, you might think, well, this is nothing compared to the totalizing impact of multinational corporations and fossil fuel companies and big tech companies and so on. But actually, when I was researching this new book, I came across this amazing bit of research about the political economist Adam Smith in the 18th century. It turns out that Adam Smith didn't even realize there was an industrial revolution going on when he was right in the middle of the industrial revolution. Okay? He couldn't see it because it was fragmented. It was contingent. And I think that's where we may be today. In fact, we may actually be witnessing a jump onto another new S-curve a growing regenerative and distributive economy, a growing questioning of democracy, making it more grassroots and more long-term. If you put together these little examples, you actually may start seeing a pattern. I'm not saying this is definitely happening, that we're definitely on the new curve, but we might be a bit like Adam Smith, actually in the middle of a change that we can't quite see. and We can only see it if we go forward 100 years from now. We've barely scratched the surface of all of the ideas contained in The Good Ancestor. So I would implore all of the listeners to this podcast to pick up a copy and read it and act on it. But before we finish, can you suggest one thing other than reading The Good Ancestor that our listeners can go out and do tomorrow that will help bring about long-term thinking and a sustainable world? There's two things you can do, actually, not one thing. The first thing is the next time you're about to vote, give your votes to your children or grandchildren or a young person that you know. That's what my partner and I did during the last UK general election. We gave our votes to our 11-year-old twins and we sat around the kitchen table, debated the party manifestos, and they told us where to put the X on the ballot sheet. And in case you're wondering, they didn't simply copy their parents' political opinions. So I think that's something that a lot of people could do, but you can't necessarily do that tomorrow unless you're somewhere there where there's an election tomorrow. The other thing you can do tomorrow is go and visit an ancient tree and sit underneath it and don't take a selfie of yourself in front of it. Go and visit a thousand-year-old yew tree in a country churchyard or something like that and 
follow the dictates of the great Vietnamese Zen master, Thich Nhat Hanh, who said, don't just do something, sit there. Really absorb this deep time creation, its roots in the ground, knowing that that tree has seen, has witnessed hundreds, maybe a thousand years of history and will do so long past your own lifetime. I think that's one of the small ways we can start connecting with deep time in everyday life. Personally, I'm going to take your advice in the book and go and chalk the horse at the next available opportunity. But if our listeners want to know what chalking the horse is, they will have to read the book. Indeed, they will. (laughs) It's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been really, really fascinating. Thank you. This week's podcast starred Roman Krisnarik and was produced and presented by me. It was edited by John Doughty. If you're lucky enough to be listening to this podcast soon after it's released, head over to our website, howtoacademy.com, because our live stream program this week is spectacular, with guests including Malcolm Gladwell, Marina Hertz, Stephen Hawking's collaborator Len Mlodino, Nick Offerman from Parks and Rec, and James Rebanks. There really is something for everyone, so I urge you to tune in while you can. And as ever, if you enjoyed this week's show, please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>